Heavenly Father, whether we are meeting in here or whether we're meeting elsewhere in the building or in your word in Sunday school, and we're reflecting on this story, a well-known story to many of us. We pray that you might help us to connect with it and to recognize afresh some of what you are seeking to share to us through it. In Jesus' name, Amen. going to begin this morning with a bit of a quiz and it's all about the biggest sandwich ever made. This isn't it by the way, but the biggest sandwich ever made. Believe it or not, this is an actual category in the Guinness Book of Records. So I have a multiple choice quiz and there's four questions, and I'll give you the answers at the end, but uh, I'll have the answers on the screen. So, so, first question is, in which country was the largest sandwich ever made created? Was it A, Japan, B, USA, C, Australia? So who thinks it'll be A? Japan. Anyone think B, America? Anyone think C, Australia? Okay, right, so hold, hold on to your answers and we'll see. So second one is, what was the main ingredient in the sandwich? Was it A, chicken, B, tuna fish, or C, Corned beef. If you were making a really, really big sandwich, what would you go for? So who reckons chicken? Who reckons tuna? Okay. Who reckons corned beef? Excellent. The world's largest sandwich was roughly square shaped. So was it 3.6 metres by 3.6 metres? Was it 4.6 metres by 4.6 metres? Or was it 5.6 metres by 5.6 metres? So who reckons A? B? Okay. And C? Quite a lot of people sitting on the fence here at the moment. <laughs> also, finally, to the nearest kilogram, what was the weight of the sandwich? Was it A, 468 kilograms? Was it B, 2,468 kilograms? Or was it 4,468 kilograms? So how many A's have we got? Okay. B, C. Okay. Well, according to the Guinness Book of Records, as of last Wednesday when I checked, so somebody may have broken this since, since Wednesday, but I doubt it. The largest sandwich ever made was made here at Wild Woody's Chill and Grill 
in Roseville, Michigan, USA. <laughs> it, uh, it contained, that's it. It was, it was made on St. Patrick's Day 2005, by the way. Don't ask me if there was any specific reason why they went for St. Patrick's Day. But the sandwich contained 68 kilograms of mustard, 468 kilograms of corned beef, 117.9 kilograms of cheese, and 240.4 kilograms of lettuce and 1,618.4 kilograms of bread. It was 44 centimeters thick and 3.6 meters long and 3.6 meters wide and the total weight was 2467.5 kilograms almost two and a half tons a sandwich <laughs> let's just put this into perspective i did a quick internet check on this and that is about the weight of a Land Rover Discovery 4. It is twice the weight of Jill's Volkswagen Polo. A sandwich. And I imagine thousands of people could have eaten from that sandwich and been well and truly stuffed. But today we come to a miracle in which Jesus fed 5,000 people with much more meager rations. It's one of two kind of mass catering feeding miracles recorded by Matthew and Mark. There is also a, a lesser known feeding of the 4,000 involving very slightly more food, and it gets a bit less coverage, you know, maybe because there were fewer people, there was slightly more food, there were fewer baskets of leftovers, and well, it already died. And actually, we say it's the feeding of the 5,000 and the feeding of the 4,000, but the Gospels highlight that this was only the number of men present. We have no idea how many women and children were there. And if you've been following the community Bible experience for the last week, you'll know we've been in the Gospel of Matthew. But the event that we're actually focusing on today is told in all four Gospels. And apart from the cross and the resurrection, that is exceptionally rare. Suggesting that there was this, this was something that had a huge impact on early Christian communities. Now they only recall slightly different details. Matthew's telling is more sparse than some of the others. And although they all in some form or other allude to the death of John the Baptist right beforehand, the reason they are in this particular relationship where the feeding happened is slightly different as well. Matthew has Jesus withdraw to reflect on the death of John the Baptist. In Mark and Luke, the disciples have just returned from a mission trip and it appears Jesus is taking them away for some recovery time or perhaps to unpack and debrief on what's happened. Mark includes the details of the, getting the crowd to sit down in groups of hundreds and fifties. Luke just says they sat down in around fifties. John is the one who includes the story of the boy providing the food and tells us that the loaves were barley loaves. 
But they all agree on some of the key, on the main key details, that there were 5,000 men, not including women and children, that there were five loaves and two fish, and that there were 12 baskets of leftovers. And this is clearly a story that they reflected on deeply in the early days of the church. I find that interesting. I mean, although God brings life into the Gospels and has used them to speak to generation after generation, it's worth bearing in mind that when our Gospels were originally written, they had a specific audience or a church community in mind. And they all face different problems or different situations. And if you read the Gospels carefully, you can kind of sometimes work out certain things about the communities that they were written to and the story and the problems they were facing because of the stories that are included in the way they're told. Yet they deliberately selected stories that would mean something to their community. And yet, apart from the Gospel, or apart from the cross and resurrection, this is one of the very few stories that every gospel writer thought, I've got to get this one. And I'm not saying that's not a wow factor, but lots of miracles and wow factors. It's quite surprising that the raising of Lazarus is only mentioned in one, for example. Matthew was one of the disciples, and yeah, so he was probably a rocking for most for the, all the ministry of Jesus, and he doesn't include some real belters of a story like Good Samaritan and Prodigal Son, even though he includes lots of other parables. I suggest that the reason that they all include this. It's because it has something of the universal appeal. Does it speak to a universal challenge that they all face? And not just to universal challenges, of, uh, universal challenge to churches in the first century, but to churches in any place in any age. Can there be anything more universal than a story about a bunch of disciples called to serve Jesus in a world which is filled with so much need and occasionally feeling overwhelmed by that need and their capacity to meet it and asking how can we use this to do that? And in some ways I'm going back a little bit on what we talked about last week. Those who were here or who watched or listened online might remember we talked about the armour of God. And I opened that sermon by talking about troops being sent off into battle or medics battling COVID without the right equipment or with unreliable and inadequate equipment. And I said when God sends us out, he's not like that. We go out fully and properly equipped. And yet, if we're honest, it doesn't always feel like that, does it? Sometimes it can feel overwhelming. We come to God with our prayers and God says, well, why don't you do something about that? And we're left scratching our heads going, how? With what? I suggest that's universal. There are a couple of things I want to draw out from this passage this morning. The first is that we are not 
always confronted with need when we are ready or in a decent place to meet it. In fact, the opposite seems to be more true most of the time. God doesn't check your diary before sending someone he wants you to help across your path. And that's key to Matthew's telling of this story. If we'd picked up the reading a few verses earlier, we'd have read how John the Baptist was brutally executed because one man couldn't control his lust for his stepdaughter or keep watch on his tongue. So he made a foolish promise and he didn't want to be seen to be backing out of it. And let's be growing up here when we're told Herodias' daughter danced for Herod and his guests. We're not talking ballad or ballet or an Irish jig here. And it got Herod hot under the collar. And Herod promised her whatever she asked for. And after consultation with her mother, who had her own reasons for wanting rid of John the Baptist, she said, give me the hair of John the Baptist on a platter. And so against his better judgment, Herod had John beheld. And it's impossible to exaggerate the importance of John the Baptist first century Judaism. The first century Roman and Jewish historian Josephus, who is one of our major sources outside the Bible for the background of the, of the world of the New Testament, when he was writing, he devoted far more space to John the Baptist than he did to Jesus. John had, for a season, drawn people back to God. He had prepared the ground for Jesus' own ministry. He had reawakened an expectancy that had long lain dormant in the silent years between the Old and the New Testament. Jesus himself had identified with the movement of John the Baptist when he went to the Jordan to be baptized. And there's also a personal dimension to Jesus' grave. Luke tells us that Jesus' mother, Mary, and John's mother, Elizabeth, were related. The old King James Bible says they were cousins, which would have made Jesus and John second cousins. Most other translations leave the exact nature of the relationship between Mary and Elizabeth a little more ambiguous. But there was that relation, and they felt close. And perhaps it was a moment which brought home to Jesus more forcefully the fate that lay in his future. Brutal death at the hands of those who held power in the world. It had been Jesus' intention to get away to a quiet place. But if that was his intention, his plans were thwarted. Need wasn't checking Jesus' schedule. The crowds followed him so that when he arrived where he wanted to rest or reflect, they were waiting for him. Few would have considered it unreasonable for Jesus to ask them, can you just give me a bit of time? Or if he had got the disciples to send them away. Jesus doesn't. 
Instead, Jesus feels compassion for them. Mark tells us it's because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Their political leadership was dreadful. Their, and now a major spiritual and prophetic leader had been executed. And yet, even in the midst of his own need, Jesus had compassion for others. In Jesus, we encounter what God is really like. And in this passage, we see his overwhelming emotion for us and for his world, his love and compassion. Because our news is full of people feeling lost without a shepherd. So much suffering, so much need in the world. If you don't occasionally feel overwhelmed by it, I'm not certain you're really paying attention. So many good, innocent people suffer, and so many of those who hold power in whatever form don't have the character to exercise it well. And yet here, as we look at Jesus and see in him God taking on a human face, we catch a glimpse of the compassion with which God is looking on the world. A number of years ago, and I say this and I realised as I wrote it, it's scarcely almost 30 years ago, there was a song in the charts by a woman called Joan Osborne, and the song was called One of Us. And the chorus asked the question, what if God was one of us? Well, in Jesus, we get the answer. Because he was one of us. He took on flesh and blood and lived and moved amongst us. In Jesus, we see a God who looks on us with compassion and comes to meet us at the deepest point of our And he is still taking on flesh and bone and seeking to meet his world at its deepest point of need. For he takes on the body and invites us to be part of it. Because another universal dimension of the story is that Jesus doesn't do it alone. He involves his disciples at every point. And still he does that. The day's wearing on. Perhaps it's out of concern for Jesus that you know, he'd been trying to get away and the crowd were pressing in on him and maybe the disciples wanted to help Jesus out or maybe there was a little more self-interest. Maybe that he was, this was supposed to be time away with them and others were taken away from them. Maybe it was out of genuine concern for the crowd. It's getting late. This is isolated. You know, they're going to go hungry. So they urge Jesus, send them home. Jesus, we're in the middle of nowhere here. There's nothing here. It's already getting late. Send the crowds away. Then they can go and buy some food in the villages around here. And Jesus comes up with a startling challenge. They don't need to go away. You give them something. And 
so many other Gospels have the disciples working out, what, what would it cost to do that? They're reckon about half a year's wages, or, you know, and even then, maybe they only get a little bite. Matthew's more sparse. They just, they just come and say, well, we only have five loaves of bread and two fish. And Jesus says, bring them to me. It is that universal challenge that churches and Christians have had down the years that God calls us to act and we focus on the reasons why not. We focus on what we lack. Oh, if only we had this. Or if only we had that. Oh, if only I was good at that. Or if only we had that kind of person. Or if only we went out and got that bit of kit. And maybe the question we're being asked is, what do you have? Bring it to me. Because the point of this story isn't really that they had what they needed for the task ahead. The sheer ridiculousness of what they're being asked to do and handing someone five loaves and two fish and expecting 5,000 people to be fed with it, it's there in the story. And it's in a sense they are being told to accept and name that they cannot do it, at least on their own. Because those two sentences go together so well. What do you have is pretty meaningless without the bring it to me. Both halves are important. But how often do we focus on what we lack? How often do we look at others and wish we were more like them? We wish we, they, we had what they had. Wish we could do what they could do. Have you ever thought that they might be looking at you and thinking the exact same thing? And that even, some, even thought, ever thought that it's sometimes the same people that you wish you had what they had who are thinking the same about you? It never ceases to amaze me that when you ask people what they think they, they've got or they can do, how frequently they say, oh, well, nothing really. And I'm not sure if it's just a peculiarly British thing. Most of us don't like to, as we say, blow our own trumpet. We can tend to play down what we're good at. Nobody wants to appear big-headed or boastful and say, well, I think I can do that. Our faith values virtues like humility. But humility isn't about putting yourself down. It's not, the, it's not going, oh, woe is me, I'm a useless worm. And by the way, worms are not useless. They are very, very important in our world. It's simply about having a realistic sense of self. And the first step is an honest assessment of what we have. And the second is will we bring it to Jesus? That's what the disciples do. With tremendous results. Jesus takes what they offered, he expressed gratitude to God for the resources he had available, and then began to break it and break it 
and break it, and on and on it went, breaking it and breaking it and breaking it. And every time they took a load out to one group, they would come back to find another load waiting. What they had of itself was pretty meaningless. No one in their right mind looked at what they handed to Jesus and thought, I know it doesn't look like much, but with a bit of imagination and creativity, you know, we could do this. No! No one was thinking that. But in Jesus' hands, it was enough. But they needed to place it into his hands. See, we can come to God with our prayers. We pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And God replies, is that what you really want? You really do want God's love expressed in the world? Well, then live it up. I can't get do it. What have you got? And there are times when I can feel like, well, Jesus, all I've got is five loaves and two fish. And what will that do with so many? And maybe we feel that if God really wants to have a place for us, he should really be a bit more strategic in his resource planning. But sometimes it's not the lack of the resources that's the problem, but that we struggle to put them into the hands of Jesus. We get fearful of what he might do with it. If I give him this, what have I left? When the disciples place the loaves and fish in the hands, Jesus. They don't know what's going to happen next. It's certainly not on their radar that in his hands it will be so much more than enough. And what we have might seem so small that we can fall into the trap of thinking, but it is all we have and cling to it. When we're honest enough to own what we truly have and when we're courageous enough to place it into God's hands, it may amaze us to discover what God can do with it. When we honestly name our insufficiency, our inability, our weakness, but say, God, you can have that. We are handing it to the one who works strength out of weakness. It's been his modus operandi for thousands of years. Honestly recognizing our weakness, but also being honest about what we do have rather than fixating on what we don't, is actually what qualifies us to take our part in God's plans for the world. So if we ever look at the task laid before us and feel overwhelmed, take heart. You're not the first and you won't be the last. It's been the universal experience of followers of Jesus across cultures, across generations, from the very first believer, all of whom have thought, yeah, this is the story we need to tell. Because they all needed to be reminded of God's power working through what little they felt they had. And he still the same God who cares for his world and has expressed that commitment in sending Jesus. He's still that God who hasn't let go of us 
even as we rejected him and nailed him to a cross. Truly take seriously the responsibility he has, he has placed in us for seeing his kingdom come and his will done on earth as it is in heaven. And it's costly. It's not easy. We can feel that we're offering all that we've got and thinking, how are we supposed to do this with that? But however little we think we have to offer, if we're prepared to place it into his hands, he is able to take what we offer, give thanks and use it, and achieve far more with it than we think possible. Grace and peace be with you.